The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. Who is worthy? Part 2, Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Uh, It's a joy to be back with you in this book, and um, we are in Revelation 5 now, where John has been uh, transported, as it were, uh, through a door standing open in heaven, and the scene now revealed to the Apostle John is located in the very throne room of God, the most holy place in the heavenly temple. And John writes about the things that he sees there, and as he writes, it's as though we ourselves are transported with him. We get to see, as it were, through what John writes, we get to see this scene as well with sanctified imagination, considering all that's been revealed to John, and we get to take encouragement from what John sees and what he records there. So it's almost like we've been transported with him, and that's the intention of the text. We are brought into the drama as it were, of this particular event, and made to, uh, through Scripture and in the power of the Spirit, uh, made to sense the wonder and amazement, the marvel of it all. Uh, So that's our joy as we consider this text together. As we get into chapter 4 and 5 in particular, chapter 4 and chapter 5 is this throne room scene. Both of those chapters fit together as a single unit, uh, and it's a picture of of the one who is seated upon the throne and then now one who approaches the Ancient of Days seated upon the throne to take from his right hand this scroll. And this image, we're going to talk about structure in Revelation very soon. I've decided to deal with each of these eschatological issues as they come up in the book. And so I believe we're going to be, before we get into the the details of chapter 6, we're going to look at the structure of the book of Revelation. But if you consider the opening three chapters of the book and the seven churches, each of those seven churches being representative of the church as a whole. That's why the number seven is so significant there. Our brother mentioned this morning, I believe it was during the call to repentance, that um, even though this specific letter was written to Ephesus or a specific letter was written to Laodicea, we find in every church uh, in the church age, every church is represented by these seven in some form shape or fashion, and that there will be those in every church who suffer from having lost their first love or who suffer from believing themselves to be rich in need of nothing when they don't know that they are miserable, poor, blind, and naked, right? In other words, those seven churches representative of the church as a whole and intended, those seven churches intended to exhort and to warn and to correct and to encourage us in our day as we face our own challenges uh, during this time of tribulation. That being said, those opening three chapters, uh, uh, representative for all the churches as it were, we then come to this throne room scene in chapter four and chapter five. So if we finish that group of sevens, those seven churches in the opening three chapters, we now come to the throne room scene and it's this throne room scene that is to provide the right perspective for those churches and churches today as we go through our period of tribulation, as we're going through difficulty, as we face trials and tribulations, as we face adversity as a church, what is it that is to help us through the difficulty? The eyes of faith on our Lord Jesus Christ, the eyes of faith on God who is seated upon the throne, ruling in absolute sovereignty. That is what the church needs. They need a vision of the one seated upon the throne and the one who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. That's what we need as a church. So if you think about that with me, that's the intention of the book. We're introduced to these representative churches and then given a vision of exactly what we need to make it through our time of difficulty. We've taken up now the torch of faith, as it were. Each one of us, and we as a church, in our own generation, we have this little uh, corn hill that we've been planted on uh, where we are to preach the gospel. We're to be a light that shines in a dark place. And what do we need? when we're tempted to compromise? What do we need when the world assaults us from without? What do we need when heresy and false teaching uh, assaults us sometimes from within? We need a vision of the one who is sovereign and seated upon the throne to help us in our time of need. Do you see? So four and five, this throne room scene is to depict God in his sovereignty as an encouragement to the church that as although things appear to be difficult, sometimes they may even appear as 
hopeless in the eyes of man, God is seated upon his throne and is dictating the events of history to its final and full consummation. Do you see? So as we get into chapter 6, then, it's that vision as we go through the difficulties, as we go through the adversity and the tribulation of chapter 6, chapter 7, into chapter 8, it's that scene, if you will, of God seated upon his throne that is to be an encouragement to God's people. All right, so we're in chapter 5 now, and that's our backdrop. That's a, a bit of an introduction to the structure we'll look at in a couple of weeks. In John chapter 4, John, uh, in Revelation chapter 4, John introduced us to the central figure of the vision. He introduced us to the one who is seated upon the throne. Now in chapter 5, John draws our attention to the scroll that he holds in his right hand. And as we talked about last time, our last time together, um, this scene now sets the stage for one of the greatest moments in all of recorded history. Uh, a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And behold... There's no one worthy, verse 6. And then there is one who is worthy. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. He took the scroll and heaven erupts in worship. Now to be sure, John, to set this text up for us, John is speaking figuratively about what he is given to see. He's speaking figuratively. God is spirit. Our confession states that God is without body parts, or passions. And so he is not physically seated on a throne. Heaven cannot contain him. He does not have a right hand. That is an anthropomorphism. Anthro meaning man, morphe meaning form. It's a, a form of man used to communicate something to it. It's, it's an anthropomorphism of God. Uh, God does not have a right hand. He is spirit, nor does he hold a scroll. John is describing these things for us figuratively. So Although John is describing these things for us figuratively, the event recorded in chapter 5 is, has a historical referent. We talked about that last week. It has a historical referent, and it's important to place this reference historically. As we clearly laid out last week, the vision that John has given in the first century is a vision of an event that took place at the ascension of Jesus Christ. We line that up with Revelation chapter 12, Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, with Daniel chapter 7. And in the events, uh, this event, in the words of one commentator, essentially is where Jesus Christ takes over. He takes over. He is given all authority as one who is conquered. The Lord, in giving the great commission of the church, says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. Right? Jesus now has been given. He is the one who has prevailed in the language of verse 5, he is the lamb who was slain, in the language of verse 6, he has redeemed us to God by his blood, verse 9, the one who's prevailed, given all authority, and now takes over. So what John is clearly seeing then takes place after the crucifixion and after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are those who want to consign what they read here in John chapter four, or Revelation chapter four, Revelation chapter five, they want to consign this to some far off and distant future event. It's not the case. And the way that we line that up, the way that we understand that is from Revelation chapter 12, Acts one and two, Daniel chapter seven. We see how this scene uh, comports with Old Testament texts and even a good explanation in Revelation chapter 12. The Ancient of Days is on his throne. Before him, the, the risen Lord ascends in the clouds and is brought before him as one who has prevailed, who has conquered. And it's then and there that he, the Lord, receives all authority, a name above all names, and the kingdom. And it's there that, according to Daniel chapter 7, that his saints receive the kingdom with him. We'll talk about that more as we work through the text. Now, much of that will come into further view as we read through uh, six, seven, and eight. For right now, the text of chapter five, we want to consider under three headings. The first is the scroll, the next is the savior, and last is the song. The scroll, the savior, and the song. The scroll from verses one and four, one through four, the savior, verses five through seven, and the song, verses eight through 14. We're going to occupy our attention tonight with verses one through four and this scroll in the right hand of him who is seated upon the throne. So we want to begin this evening with verse one. John records, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. John sees a scroll, literally a, a biblion. It's the word for book. 
a scroll or a book in his right hand. And again, this is figurative language. It's symbolic language. So when we encounter figurative language or symbolic language in the book of Revelation, we need to ask, what does God intend to communicate to us through this figurative or symbolic language? What does God intend to communicate to us through what John sees? Now, as seen elsewhere, the right hand is important. The right hand of God symbolizes God's authority or God's sovereignty. The right hand was the one with which the patriarchs uh, dispensed blessing or cursing, laying their right hand on the heads of their sons. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, it was from God's right hand that he gave the law. What would that signify to us, God giving the law with his right hand? It signifies authority. It signifies sovereignty. The psalmist speaks of the saving strength of God's right hand. The, omnipotent, the psalmist says, his omnipotent right hand upholds me. His right hand is full of righteousness, David says. His right hand finds those who hate him. It is with his right hand that the Lord exercises his power. Psalm 118, verse 16, the right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. There's this emphasis, isn't there, on the right hand of God. It's not a southpaw, right? It's the right hand of God. The right hand is indicative of his sovereignty, of his authority, It's with his right hand now that the Lord, think with me, it's with his right hand that the Lord executes all of his decreed will. The psalmist says on one hand, the right hand, that his righteous right hand upholds me, and in another place, his right hand finds all those who hate him. So in one sense, it's by his omnipotent right hand that God dispenses mercy and delivers his people, redeems his people, and also with his omnipotent right hand pours out judgment upon the wicked. Uh, Both are the prerogative, if you will, of sovereign divine power. That power seemed to have been executed by his right hand. God, with his right hand, carrying out all of his decrees, and who's seated at his right hand? The Lord Jesus Christ, uh, in power. Uh, Again, the express image of his person in a position of divine authority. So it's, it's no coincidence then, Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, that John sees this biblion, this scroll, in the right hand of him who is seated upon the throne. Now that's, that scroll then, indicative, as we'll see, indicative of the decreed will of God. God's plans, God's intentions, God's decreed will. Ephesians 1 says that he is the one who works all things after the counsel of his own will. It does not say that he looks down the corridor of time and works all things after the decisions of men in history. When he finds out what they want to do, then he makes up his mind and writes the script of it. No, (laughs) he works all things after the counsel of his own will. The decreed will, God's decreed will then, executed through divine providence in time. God has this decreed will. You could say that God wrote every detail, every detail of the script of history, and now it's through divine power executed through God's providence that brings that decreed will to pass, executes that decreed will through providence in time. Now, usually, scrolls contained writing on one side and then were rolled up. But verse one here describes the scroll as written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, what's the significance of that? Significance of that? First, scrolls were often uh, huge, large. I, had, I think that I had read, if I'm not mistaken, that the, uh, the Dead Sea Scroll of Isaiah was 30 feet long. 30 feet long. Uh, the scroll of Romans, for example, in the, the 20s uh, uh, feet long, and oftentimes uh, written on one side. So it was a um, protective, you could say. They would write on one side, roll the scroll up, seal it or wrap it, and then send it. In this case, uh, the scroll is described as writing on the front and on the back, which is unusual, and it's sealed then with seven seals. In other words, the scroll is completely filled with writing completely filled with writing, a completed scroll, uh, a scroll which could allow for no further additions, and a scroll which leaves absolutely nothing out. 
That's the way to, we're, I think we're to think about that. Um, a scroll that is entirely filled has no room for any additions, and it, it communicates that there is nothing, not one thing that's left out. The seals, those seven seals, seals would have been made with um, hot wax bearing the imprint of the king's signet ring. Uh, the seal is the type, so to speak, and the signet ring itself is the anti-type, meaning here with seven seals that the scroll bore the authority of the king who sealed it. It bears the authority of the king who sealed it. Think with me about that for a moment. The scroll is written, written by one in authority. This is the decreed will of God uh, on it, front and back, nothing left out. No further additions can be made. Rolled up, sealed by seven seals, sealed by the one who wrote it, sealed with authority by the king. It bears his imprint. Um, In other words, it bore the authority of the king who sealed it And of necessity then, it was sealed for one who has authority to open it and to read it. The king has a purpose for the scroll. It's rolled up and sealed. He has a purpose for that scroll. Uh, That scroll will be disclosed at the proper time and disclosed to the proper person. But it's not just available for anybody to come along, break the seals, open it up, and to read what's on the inside. Those seals, with the authority of the king stamped upon them, Uh, indicate that one with the king's authority to open the seals, to break the seals, and to open the scrolls, that only one with authority is allowed to do it. No one could break the seals without the express authority of the king. Only one who is worthy. Only one who is worthy could open the scroll. So what's the nature of this book then? What's the nature of this scroll? And for for that, once again, we begin with a reference to uh, this book, this scroll, in the Old Testament. Turn with me to Daniel. Daniel. And if you remember now, uh, we compared this throne room scene, Revelation 4, Revelation 5, with the same vision given to Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. If you remember that uh, explanation uh, last week, the Ancient of Days, Daniel chapter 7, the Ancient of Days is seated on the throne, and one like the Son of Man comes on the clouds of heaven. And when he comes, that one coming on the clouds, the Lord Jesus Christ, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. When does Jesus Christ receive the kingdom? He receives the kingdom when he's conquered, when he has prevailed, and when he ascends in the clouds of glory to the Ancient of Days and receives the kingdom, the everlasting kingdom, from the Ancient of Days, so to speak. Uh, That kingdom, so that all peoples and nations and tongues should serve him, and it's in that courtroom scene, as it were, that books were opened. Look at um, Daniel chapter 8 now. It's in Daniel chapter 8 that then the angel Gabriel gives Daniel an understanding of the vision and communicates to Daniel that the vision is in reference to the latter days. Look at verse 17, verse 17. So he came near, the angel came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision, that vision that we looked at last week, the visions, really the vision of chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, (laughs) that the vision... Um, shall happen, uh, where the vision refers to the time of the end, the time of the end. Now, verse 18, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me, stood me upright, and he said, look, I am making known to you what will happen in the latter time of the indignation, the latter time of God's wrath, for at the appointed time, the end shall be. There is an end appointed, and at the appointed time, the end will come, okay? Now, what we hear then, what we hear in Daniel chapter 7 to the end of the book are prophecies concerning the days of the end. Daniel, from 7 to the end of the book, contained prophecies that concern the latter time of the indignation, the time of the end, that appointed time when the end shall be. Those days, you read these prophecies in the book of Daniel, those days include God's works of judgment over the whole earth. Those days culminate in the consummation of the everlasting kingdom, that small stone that grows into a mountain that consumes, fills the the entire earth, the kingdom which shall never go away. Um, So it, it culminates in the consummation, the full and final consummation of that kingdom, the redemption of God's people, and all of that happening at the appointed time. 
So again, now we've talked about the right hand of God, the authority of God, uh, his right hand executing judgment, his right hand um, redeeming his people, his right hand, his omnipotent power, carrying out his decreed will in providence. And now we come to this scroll, uh, Daniel chapter eight in particular, these books that are appointed, these prophecies appointed for the time of the end, explaining Again, God's works of judgment over the whole earth, culminating in the consummation of the everlasting kingdom, the redemption of God's people, all of it happening at the appointed time. Now, the latter time of the indignation, that language used in verse 19, that time culminates with a, a final worldly blasphemous king and on whom, on the wing of abominations, It's one whom makes desolate. This is a final blasphemous king, and on the wing of abominations, he makes desolate. He shall come to his end. No one will help him. And then we read this in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Again, I think this this chronology continues to be important. We'll look at that as we go through Revelation. This blasphemous king on the wing of abominations makes desolate. He shall come to his end. No one will help him. That's the prophecy of Daniel. We read this in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. What does that sound like to you? You recognize that language? Sounds like Matthew 24, doesn't it? the Lord's Olivet Discourse, and the Lord himself says at that time there will be a great tribulation, tribulation, such has never been until that time nor ever will be again. It's a description of the great tribulation. And at that time, this is verse one again, and at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Right? There is judgment, that time of trouble, such as there never was since there was a nation, even at that time, and then the deliverance of God's people, everyone found written in the book. In other words, judgment and redemption. Verse two, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's a reference to the judgment. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. Those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So this is, again, a a reference to the time of the end, a time of God's indignation, a time of God's final deliverance, a consummation of the kingdom, all of this taking place at the appointed time of the end. In verse 4, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. What What are the words that Daniel is to shut up? right? The words of this prophecy. What's being prophesied here, Daniel is to shut up those words and seal the book, right? These things, in other words, these things are not to be executed now at the time of Daniel. These things pertain to the time of the end, a latter time or an appointed time of the end. So Daniel is to seal the book until the appropriate time. Daniel said in verse eight, look at verse eight. Although I heard I did not understand, and then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. The reason that the book is sealed is because it pertains to the end. Do you see? It pertains to the end. The book contains, what does the book contain? The book contains decrees of God concerning the judgment of the wicked The book contains the decrees of God concerning the deliverance or the redemption of his people, the consummation of the kingdom, those things which will take place in the latter days. From Daniel's perspective, many days from now, right? From Daniel's perspective, if you're standing in the sandals of Daniel, many days from now, and so the book is sealed until the appointed time. Now, by contrast, by contrast, look with me at Revelation 22. Revelation 22 Now again, Revelation is a book that concerns a prophecy. And at the very end of the prophecy of this book, Revelation 22, verse 6, the angel said to John, John, these words are faithful and true. 
And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the, th- the things which must shortly take place. Now, when Daniel heard the prophecy, the prophecies of the end, they were for a time in the future, right? The appointed time, the latter days, the time of the end. Now, these are things which must shortly take place. Behold, verse 7, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, verse 8, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Not a good idea. He said to me, see that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant, one of your brethren, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book worship God. And he said to me, verse 10, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is at hand. The time is at hand. So now John himself, in one of his epistles, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, uh, John says, little children, it is the last hour. And when John's writing now in the first century, Daniel, seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. It concerns a time of the end, an appointed time when God is going to pour out his judgments upon the wicked, when he's going to redeem his people, when he's going to establish the eternal kingdom. Uh, That appointed time of the end is not now. Seal up the words of the book until the appointed time. John now comes, and he's not to seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. They're to be unsealed. Why? Because the time is at hand. The time is short. The time is at hand. The time is now. John says, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. So when does this final time of the end begin and take place? It takes place, it begins at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, in his incarnation, in his life, In his death and resurrection and ascension, Jesus Christ ushers in the new kingdom, ushers in the last days. Now, what else can we determine regarding the content of this scroll? Again, the scroll that we see in Revelation chapter 5 is sealed up, but one is about to come who is worthy, and he's going to break the seals and unravel the scroll. Why is that? Because the time has come. The time has come. When did that take place? It took place in the throne room of God when Jesus Christ ascended on the clouds of heaven and was brought before the ancient of days and he received the kingdom and received all authority and received all power, right? It took place then. Has that scroll, the seven seals, when were the seals broken? When was the scroll opened? When Jesus Christ received the kingdom. Make sense? So again, the chronology of this becomes really important. Look at Ezekiel chapter two. Ezekiel chapter two. The reason that I I labor here to describe this is because, again, there are many who would consign all of these events, all of these things, to some far-off distant future time, and that somehow, unless you're alive at that time, these things really don't concern you. You're going to die. uh, You'll go to heaven if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and these things don't concern you. The book of Revelation is for us. It's written for the Lord's church, for the Lord's people, in this time of the end. It is a new covenant book for a new covenant church, for a new covenant people who are living through this period of history. This prophecy has a much to say to us in this church. And it's important that we understand that we're living through this time. The scroll has been taken from the one seated upon the throne. The seven seals of that scroll have been broken and the scroll has been opened. Why? Because we live in the latter days. We live during those days that are the appointed time and now the prophecies of the word of this book, not to be sealed up. We have it, Revelation, the book of Revelation. These things have been disclosed to us. Why? Because we're living in the last days, right? And the church uh, needs this disclosure, this gracious disclosure from God. All right, Ezekiel chapter two. Ezekiel is shown a scroll And Ezekiel is about to begin his prophecy against the nation of Israel. Look at verse 6. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you, and you dwell among scorpions. Do not be afraid of their words, or dismayed by their looks, though they are a rebellious house. You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Now, verse 9, when I looked, 
there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. Again, this is God's wrath, or God's indignation expressed in God's decrees, God's will as he had planned it against the nation of Israel for their rebellion. Writing on the inside and the outside, absolutely nothing left out, no additions could be made, it is complete, it's perfect, nothing can be added or taken away. A complete revelation of God filled with judgments against the, na- the nation. So what is it then, if we put these together, what is it that we see then with John in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1? In the right hand of him who sits on the throne is this scroll. We see a scroll written inside and out, complete, nothing to be added, nothing missing, a scroll that has been sealed until the appropriate time has come, a scroll that contains all of God's decrees or God's complete decrees concerning the end. It's a scroll once unsealed that we see its contents poured out then in the book of Revelation. What happens when the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is, we'll get to this text shortly, but what happens when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and takes the scroll from the hand of him who sits on the throne? The Lord Jesus Christ begins to break and to open its seals. And as each seal is broken, there is this period of history, as it were, that is unfolded before our eyes in the book of Revelation. So what the Lord is doing as he breaks the seals, as the scroll is being unfolded, is he's unfolding God's decrees in history in time. It's an unfolding of all of God's plans and purposes in time. As each seal is broken, we see God's decrees, okay, being fulfilled, being worked out in providence. Um, We see judgments being poured out, judgments poured out uh, upon the wicked, and we see God's people redeemed. We see a kingdom being established, right? We see all those things as the the scroll begins to be unscrolled. Uh, We see a, a scroll filled with judgments against the wicked, filled with lamentations, mourning, and woe. It's a scroll that concerns the redemption of God's people under their rightful king, Uh, decrees that usher in the everlasting kingdom. It's a scroll on the right hand of God, so to speak, that is decreed in God's own authority and to be executed with his divine power, executed with his divine authority. Therefore, think with me, it's a scroll that can only be opened by someone worthy to open it. It's a scroll that can only be opened by someone able to wield God's own authority and God's own power, someone worthy, someone who has God's own authority to dispense as judgments are poured out upon the wicked and as God's people are redeemed. It can only be opened by someone who is worthy to pour out his judgments in righteousness. There's no one else worthy to do that but the Lord Jesus Christ. It could only be opened by someone who is just because this one who is just will be dispensing justice. It can only be opened by someone who is worthy to receive its promises and rewards. God's decrees, God's promises, God's rewards could only be received by someone who is worthy. The Lord Jesus Christ alone is worthy. The only reason, brothers and sisters, that we receive rewards and promises are because we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. It's not because somehow you're inherently worthy, right? Uh, You may be lovable, but you're not inherently lovable. There's nothing lovable about you that compelled God to, oh, he's worthy of receiving reward. No, there's nothing worthy about us. The only one who is worthy is the Lord Jesus Christ, and we inherit with him because we have been brought into union with the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. The Lord Jesus Christ alone is worthy to receive the promises and rewards. He's the only one worthy to inherit the inheritance that is decreed in the book. And the book is sealed with seven seals. It's a number that elsewhere in Revelation is representative of fullness, representative of completion, of perfection. So this book, this scroll, sealed with seven seals, represents the fullness of God's revelation, the fullness of his decrees. It is fully sealed until such a one who is fully worthy may open its seals until such a time as was appropriate to open them. 
Uh, the time when Jesus Christ inaugurated the last days with his uh, incarnation, um, the Lord Jesus Christ receives all authority, all dominion, all power at his exaltation. Uh, all authority, the Lord says, has been given to me. Lord Jesus Christ is the only one worthy to open the scroll. Now, in other words, now, think with me. The scroll represents then the sovereign decrees of God pertaining to that time in redemptive history that lies between the inauguration and between the consummation of the everlasting kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. It deals or pertains to that period of history that began with the incarnation and ends with the full and final consummation. Now, what age is that? That's the age that we're in, brothers and sisters. That's the church age. Make sense? So it's a scroll that deals with the time that we're currently living in. So are you interested to know what's on that scroll? <laughs> it, 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 we, we live in that, in that time period. We live in that period that's representative uh, that's represented on the scroll, the decrees of God on that scroll are indicative of our time. I want to know what's on that scroll. Well, you do. You get to know what's on that scroll by reading through the book of Revelation. And we'll, we'll read through there together and figure that out as we go. Uh, this deals with that period of time that includes the return of Christ. It includes the judgment of all of his enemies. It includes the new heaven, includes the new earth, includes the ultimate redemption of the sons of glory. All began with the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ and the inauguration of the everlasting kingdom at his first coming. And it concludes with his glorious return, consummation, final consummation of the kingdom and the eternal state. So verse two then. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice about this scroll. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. Or to look at it. The word used in verse 2 of the angel's proclamation is the most common word used for preaching. Uh, and it's present and it's active. So it's as though, we think about the grammar here, the, the angel with a loud voice is acting as herald for the king and he's preaching continuously in heaven throughout history. That's the, the, the sense of the grammar. This angel is continuously saying this. He doesn't say it one time. He's saying it over and over and over again, over and over again, as though all of history, as though all of history is waiting for this one who is worthy. Who is worthy to open the scroll? Maybe since the time it was sealed up under Daniel, until this time, this angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll? Waiting for one who is worthy to step forward. And there is silence in heaven, you can imagine, silence in heaven in response to the angel's question. No one answers. Who is worthy? You feel the tension? <laughs> Who's worthy? No created being worthy. No one is able to step forward and to open the book. No created being is worthy. No created being has the power or the authority or the righteousness necessary to open the book, to carry out or execute the decrees of God concerning the end. No one is worthy to open the book and to carry out God's judgments upon the wicked and the redemption of God's people. No one is worthy. Look at Isaiah with me, Isaiah 29. Isaiah 29. In Isaiah 29, God judges Jerusalem with a spiritual blindness, spiritual blindness. And God says that the book of God's own revelation to them is like a book that is sealed. In other words, those in Jerusalem are determined to be unworthy, you could say, to know the contents of God's own self-disclosure, the, co the contents of God's revelation to them. Look at Isaiah 29, look at, at verse nine. He says to them, pause and wonder, Blind yourselves and be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep. He has closed your eyes, namely the prophets. He has covered your heads, namely the seers. The whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one who is literate, saying, read this, please. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to one who is illiterate, saying, read this, please. And he says, I'm not literate. 
Therefore, the Lord said, inasmuch as these people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandments of men, therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. It's like a book that is sealed to them. Well, brothers and sisters, let me ask you. Again, we see here a book of God's revelation that is sealed up, and it's sealed up to Israel because of their spiritual blindness, their spiritual ignorance, their rebellion, their wickedness, their treason against God. But listen, if there were no one in the throne room of heaven who was worthy to step forward and to take the scroll and to break open its seals, would we be able to look into that scroll ourselves? It would be like a book that is sealed to us. The angels proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy? And no one answers the question. There's like a silence in heaven. No one, no one steps forward to say, I'll take the scroll and break its seals. Why? No one was worthy to do that. You're not worthy. I'm not worthy. No created being was worthy. No angel is worthy to do that. Without anyone worthy, the book would have remained sealed. Do you see? The only reason that we have the revelation of God given to us in grace and in mercy is because of the worthiness of one, the lion from the tribe of Judah, who has prevailed to open the scroll and to break its seals. One is worthy, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who was promised of the woman, the seed who would crush the serpent's head. He alone has bought us from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, bought us with his own blood. He's the one who has made us kings and priests to our God. He's the only one worthy to take the scroll. And if he didn't prevail, if God didn't provide for our sin by sending his own son, there'd be no one worthy to open the scroll. We'd all be damned. We'd be doomed and damned. Do you see? Lord Jesus Christ, praise God. Praise God, the Lord Jesus Christ, worthy to take the scroll. The scroll described in Revelation 5.1, the scroll in the right hand of him who sits on the throne is sealed. It's sealed. We cannot know or see. We can't even look at it. (laughs) We can't even look at it. It's sealed until someone someone worthy is able to open it. Sealed until someone is worthy, someone worthy is able to read it. Sealed until someone worthy is able to execute the decrees of God. The decrees of God wouldn't be carried out unless the scroll is open. As the scroll is open, the decrees of God in time are executed in his providence. Without someone worthy to take the scroll and open the scroll, God's plans would not be executed at the end. Praise God, God made provision through, the, through his own son, through the Lord Jesus Christ, to have the scroll open and for his decrees to be carried out. They're carried out and fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from him, there'd be nothing. <laughs> but in the eternal counsels of the Godhead, because of the grace that God has determined to pour out us, because of the great love with which he loved us, God makes provision through his own son to see that his decrees are carried out, accomplished, and fulfilled. Do you see? There'd be no judgment for the wicked. There'd be no redemption for the righteous, no new heavens, no new earth, no inheritance. And so what was John's response to this? You can imagine in the throne room, the silence, (laughs) the silence deafening, John wept. The the word literally, verse four, John wailed openly. That's what the word means. He wailed openly. John says, verse four, I wept much. He cried out in distress because no one was found worthy to open and to read the scroll or to look at it. Is there no one? No one, right? You can imagine the tension. There's this this constant, repeated refrain from the angel. Is there anyone who can answer the call? In other words, in the scene, the unworthiness is emphatic. The unworthiness is screaming throughout the created Cosmos, the unworthiness is what is thicker, uh, this thick air you could cut with a knife. No one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth, no one in all the created order. No one could even look at it. It's a tragedy. Do you see? It's a tragedy. It's a deplorable tragedy. Since the fall of Adam, this is the ultimate plea of all creation. 
someone who is worthy. The ultimate plea of mankind, who is worthy to reconcile all things to God? Who is worthy to restore all things to their right relationship to God? Who is worthy to bring about the completion of God's good plans? Who is worthy to pour out judgment upon the wicked? Who is worthy to redeem God's people? For all of the gracious revelation of God, for all of his gracious provision, man is dramatically unworthy. And man's always looking in the wrong places for one who is worthy. He conceives of someone in heaven who might be worthy. He fashions a God after his own heart and makes him into someone he thinks may be worthy. Worthy. He scours the earth from, for someone who is worthy. He imagines there may be someone under the earth or under the sea who is worthy. In other words, um, those places represented by that language, um, no one uh, in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth, is indicative of the places where man's imagination runs wild in search of someone worthy. <laughs> it's um, fertile, fertile ground for idolatry. Martin Luther said that uh, man's heart is a factory, a factory of idols. Creates idols all over the place. Listen to this. When God says this, listen. In, his, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, listen to the language. Exodus 20, verse 2. God says, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Does that sound familiar? It's the same language. It's the same language. Those locations provide fertile soil for man's idolatrous imagination, all right? a fertile ground for idol worship. Man worships and serves the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. He suppresses the truth and he believes the lie and so he creates an idol for himself, someone that he thinks, something that he thinks is worthy. God says, Exodus 20 verse five, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. God has to supply someone who's worthy. Man's constantly looking in the wrong place. God is the one who promised that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. All of creation, all of creation should look to him, not to some figment of their imagination in heaven or on earth or under the earth. All of creation should trust him, not in some idol of their own making, some idol of their heart. He, God, alone, he has made provision to deliver us, and he's done so through the person and work of his own son. If you presume to think that anything or anyone else is worthy you are an idolater. Do you see? God says you are to have no other God before me. In answer to the question, who is worthy? Man continuously supplies the wrong answer. When you and I were lost before the Lord opened our eyes to our own sinfulness, we constantly did that. That might not have come out of our lips, but we were constantly turning to things that we thought were worthy. And as long as they were quote unquote worthy to occupy our attention and occupy our time, we gave all our time and all our attention to them until they were no longer worthy. And we found something else that was worthy, always in a search for something worthy of our time, worthy of our attention, worthy of our love, worthy of our devotion. When God says, I alone have provided one who is worthy, the lion from the tribe of Judah. Do you see? Occupy our time with all these empty, worthless, filthy things. Apart from God's gracious provision, man is hopeless, always looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. One of the elders then, Revelation 5, verse 5, John says, one of the elders said to me, do not weep, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed. We'll talk about that, has proven himself worthy. 
He's prevailed. He's proven himself worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came, he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Praise God. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the lamb, each having a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals. For you were slain, you have, and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Glory. Amen. Glory. Praise God. There was one. Is the Lord Jesus Christ. Put all of your faith and trust in him. Amen. He's the only one worthy to take the scroll. The only one worthy to have executed the decrees of God. The only one worthy to redeem God's people. To reconcile us to himself. Uh, we praise and worship him. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ. Uh, thank you, Lord, that he has prevailed. He has prevailed where every single one of us has failed. Um, he is the only one who is worthy to take the scroll. Uh, we are all dramatically and tragically unworthy and hopeless and destitute apart from him, apart from your gracious provision. And we thank you, Lord, that he has prevailed on our behalf. He went to the cross, a perfect, sinless sacrifice. Our sins imputed to him, his righteousness imputed to us. And because he bore the penalty that we justly deserved. Our sins are forgiven. We are justified in your sight, reconciled to God, and now we have peace and everlasting life. Thank you, Lord, for the glorious provision uh, that you've made for our sin and for our redemption. Thank you for Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord, for this encouragement that we see in Revelation 5 of the one, the one who is worthy um, stepping forward on our behalf to take the scroll and to secure for us all of the promises of God in him. They are all yes, and they are all amen in him because he has prevailed to take the scroll, having redeemed us by his blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And we thank you, Lord, for these glorious truths. Uh, cause us, God, by your spirit to put faith and trust in him alone when we face difficulty and adversity. He is the, he's the one who has prevailed for us. It's through faith that we can prevail in him. Help us, Lord, to live in faith as we face our own trials and tribulations in this age. Encourage your church, Lord. Build her up. Uh, make her a fit bride, we pray, for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ and for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.